Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. So Canada is pretty much closed. Public schools are shut down. Universities, offices, the House of Commons. Never seen anything like this in my life. We will continue to publish our podcasts as usual. We have no intention to stop. But we have partially shut down uh, the Canada Land office. For now, we are only coming in to record. Otherwise, everybody's working from home. And the first place that I heard that, that we all need to shut it down, was in Andre Picard's health column in the Globe and Mail. Last Wednesday, which was an eternity ago. I mean, last Wednesday, Canada was a different country. It is time to shut it down, he wrote. Canada needs to embrace social distancing. He continued, that means closing down schools from daycares through to universities temporarily, restricting access to hospitals and nursing homes, pulling the plug on mass gatherings, such as sporting events, curtailing all non-essential travel, and urging companies to have their employees work at home. Okay, so when I think of the Globe and Mail, I think of a newspaper that is usually urging people to calm down, not ramp up. To me, it is the cheerleader for the status quo, not a voice demanding radical changes. And Andre Picard, this is not a guy who I associate with scorching hot takes. He's a voice of reason guy. So when he calls for drastic measures, I listen. He certainly influenced my decision making. I don't know if he influenced the Ontario Ministry of Education or the Prime Minister or everybody else, or if maybe they were going to shut it all down anyhow, and he was just ahead of the curve in calling for it. But he does seem like a pretty good person to sit down with, to talk to, to try to figure it out. What is this? What should we do? What's going to happen? And by sit down with him, I mean talk to him from a safe social distance of about 530 kilometers. 
where he is in his office in Montreal, which is where I spoke to him last Thursday. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated, and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals pre and probiotics, and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now, and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Hi, Andre. Hi. Andre, uh, this is a very fast-moving story, and by the time people hear my conversation with you on Monday, you know, we're talking here on Thursday, maybe Canada will be shut down. Uh, maybe the schools will be shut down. Uh, perhaps um, offices, uh, people will be working from home, mass gatherings, all sporting events canceled. That might be what's in place by Monday. But right now, the only person who I'm aware of putting that forward is you. Uh, the first place that I've heard that, that we need to do in Canada, what's been done in Italy, is in your column in The Globe. I don't think of you as a very drastic or radical person. I think of you as a very reasonable and calm person. Can you tell me about what led you to publish such a really, I guess the word is an, an extreme directive in the pages of the Globe and Mail? Yeah, so first, I don't think it's extreme. You know, I'm saying that we need to really practice social distancing. So we have to stop mass gatherings, probably have to close schools, not necessarily all of them in the country at the same time, but we have to take yeah, fairly drastic measures because we have a fairly drastic pandemic going on. Uh, I think I do think of myself as level-headed. I also think I'm consistent. I've been saying all along we have to follow the evidence. The evidence has told us for a while that we had cases coming in from elsewhere in the world. We could handle those. But what really changed this last few days is community spread. So we saw a nurse uh, infecting patients in a nursing home. We saw a child in a daycare in Calgary. We saw a guy at a mining conference in Toronto. We don't know where he got the, the virus from. These are all indications that it's out there in much larger numbers than we've counted yet. Now, Canada, to its credit, is starting to step up testing. But the number of cases today, we'll know that real number in two weeks when people are getting sick or not. So we have to keep one step ahead of this. So I, I don't think this is drastic. You know, Italy has done it but Italy has done it far too late. Uh, it got a foothold in the country. I think we have to look at a country like Denmark. Denmark has done this, imposed social distancing, closed schools, uh, banned all gatherings of more than 100 people. And it's done the other part of the equation, which is make sure that uh, the poor aren't forgotten, that there's daycare for essential workers, that there's bailouts for people who lose their jobs. So, those, you know, it's, there's two sides to this coin that we have to talk about. Fair enough. I, I don't mean to stigmatize, uh, you know, words like extreme or, or I, th I think you said it's not extreme, it's drastic. And you said, well, it's not drastic. Maybe doing the most robust, if we can use that term, response or the biggest response or the safest response is the most level headed and, and calm response. But it is 
it, it, what you were calling for is more than you know. I'm aware public uh, officials calling for. Can you take me inside the editorial process? I, I have to imagine that when the Globe and Mail runs a piece from, you know, not to flatter you, but I think w- you and maybe Dr. Brian Goldman, in terms of media voices on health, might be the most the people we turn to in moments like this. That's a big decision to run a piece where the first line is, it's time to shut it down. Was that a conversation you had with your editor? What led to uh, the Globe and Mail saying, okay, we're okay with putting this out there? Well, I have pretty free reign as a columnist to to express my opinions, and I'm lucky in that regard. So I didn't need uh, pre-clearance or anything. Uh, we have with our health team a morning meeting to talk about this and what stories we're going to cover and how you know how to make sure we don't have too much overlap, et cetera, that our stories make sense. And uh, this was just mentioned at the morning meeting, and it was sort of a, we all had the same feeling. All of us who are following this obsessively had a feeling that something has changed. There's a tipping point. And I was saying, yeah. I'm thinking of doing this and people are like well go for it I didn't get any pushback on that there was some concern I think uh, later on about the the headline what did we mean by shut it down but I think that was clearly explained in in the column and is what I said earlier it's about social distancing it's not about quarantine and I say that quite explicitly this is not about quarantine this is not being like China where we're going to bolt people into their homes and and put armed guards in the street we live in a social democracy we have to count on people to be, you know, we have to uh, respect their rights and then we have to expect them to take their responsibilities. And I think if you present this uh, as public health officials in a rational way, this is why it's needed, uh, I think people will, will embrace it. I wonder if the conscious decision to call for more robust, drastic, whatever measures than are currently in place is a move on your part to try to urge public health officials or government. Like, are you worried that government is downplaying this for concerns out of uh, the economy or trying to not incite panic? And it's your role to say, no, it is time to go a little bit further. I think there's a little bit of that. You know, I think uh, uh, governments, I I don't, you know, I I feel sorry for them. They're in a tough spot. It's a really tough decision. There's going to be economic consequences. You're going to make a lot of people unhappy, whether you act or whether you don't act. So they're in an untenable position. I'm lucky in that I can sit back and say, listen, this is what we should do ideally and figure it out politically. I, I don't think my personal opinion matters. I think what matters is that I in touch with a lot of public health people, a lot of infectious disease people who can't, for a variety of reasons, express their opinions, and I become their conduit. So that's how I think of myself. And I, you know, my opinion has changed over the weeks because of that, because I see the the experts changing opinions. So I'm more, you know, I like to say I'm sort of like a, a weatherman. I'm not the person deciding the weather, but I'm the weatherman. I'm telling you what's coming, what people think out there. So that's what I try to, to grasp is what's the, the zeitgeist out there among the experts. You have covered many illnesses, the spread of many viral, uh, you know, epidemics. Like this is not your first go around. And, you know, you've been watching this kind of in slow-mo. I mean, it's happening very fast now, but we're weeks into this or, or, or months, I suppose, from your perspective. Take me into your progression of thinking. What were the indicators or sources that you find most credible when you're looking to decide whether or not it is time for everyone to change their day-to-day lives? 
You see these things come and go, H1N1, SARS, Ebola, uh, AIDS, you know, and they all have an epidemic curve that's predictable, but what we just don't know is the timing of the curve. So that's what you watch for. You watch for little markers of what's happening, how how fast are things accelerating. Over the years, I've learned all the nerdish terminology and the stuff to watch for. So we, we really look for things like uh, something called the r naught. So what's the rate of reproduction of a virus? So how fast? does it spread? How deadly is it? So what's the mortality rate? So that's what you watch for. And this uh, virus is pretty, you know, it's pretty infectious. There's a lot of people get infected by one person. Uh, it can spread without symptoms. And that's always, that's always one you watch out for because that means it's hard to stop. The mortality rate quite high, somewhere between one and three percent from all the research we have so far. That's about 10 to 30 times as deadly as the flu. Uh-huh. So these are all things that you go, oh, I have to start paying attention now. Yeah. It's interesting when health reporting becomes like stock market analysis, like you're trying to, you're not telling people what happened, but what you think is going to happen with, with based on data. It is a little bit like the stock market, but uh, I often urge people, you know, like the stock market, don't watch the ticker tape too closely. Uh, I have a tab open on my computer where I can watch the numbers, coronavirus numbers change by the hour. Now, I don't look at it too often, and I really urge the public to not look at that stuff. It's not good for your mental health, and you kind of lose context of what's going on. Uh, You know, I think you have to be careful about watching the numbers. Yeah. You're responsible for what you publish and not what everybody else publishes. But it's interesting talking to people and saying, wow, the media is really going overboard with this uh, coronavirus thing, or my mom is, is scared sick, or when we see the empty shelves of toilet paper and whatnot, and you know, this is scenes from Costco's, and people say, wow, the media is really whipping everybody up into a frenzy. I can imagine that for somebody who this is your day in, day out beat in times that are not as tense as this, you're, you're trying to push the public and, and public health officials towards taking things more seriously. And, and you know, you're, I, I consider you a responsible journalist on health issues. And then we get into this and you're just one headline amongst dozens. And we think of media as media makers as terms of like, what did I publish today? And, and can I defend that? But the accumulative effect of media is like a drip, drip, drip. It's the constant messaging. It's, it's a series of images. People don't necessarily look at the bylines or take the information from under the headlines. And that cumulative effect is what motivates a lot of, uh, of public behavior. And that can see either way where people shrug it off. Like, do you think it was a mistake to constantly compare this to to the flu and to create that association with the flu? Because you use that analogy in a very specific way to say this is much worse than the flu. And yet what I keep hearing from people is like, oh, it's okay. I'm not in a danger group. I've been told that it's just a flu. And, and uh, you know, I'm not going to change my life to avoid getting the flu. I mean, the flu is always out there. And what, what do we hear again and again and again? Well, more people die from the flu by order of magnitude than this. So what are we also afraid of? Yeah, so a couple of things there. So first of all, I think it's, yeah, we do go overboard. There's no question, but it's it's human nature. New things scare us. So of course, coronavirus scares us more than the flu, even though it's true there are many more deaths of, of the flu. Uh, it's just proportionally coronavirus is more deadly. So it's hard to balance that stuff. The other thing is, so over the years, I've become quite interested in risk communication. So how do you communicate this stuff so that you don't make people panic, so that you don't scare them too much, so you don't make them 
indifferent. So finding that balance is really important. So I, I sort of over the years have become really interested in these theoretical stuff of risk management. And you learn stuff. The worst thing to tell people is to not panic. The, the one thing that makes people panic is telling them not to panic. Again, human nature. So this, the famous toilet paper story, right? Everybody's done the toilet paper story. Why are people rushing to buy toilet paper? Because we're publishing pictures of empty shelves. It yeah. makes you want to, to go there and do it. it the, the behavior is built in. You know, it's sort of in our DNA since we were cavemen. So that stuff is interesting. So you have to think a little about are you going to publish those stories or not. I, I don't think that's the greatest uh, shortage in the history of humanity or anything. You know, we'll manage without toilet paper if we have to. But it's just an example of we, we have to think through how how we communicate. And, and there's a lot of good theories. So to answer your second part of your question about the flu, uh, the way I think you t- to communicate about the flu is not to downplay people's fears, oh, I'm scared of the flu, or to downplay this notion that, oh, the flu's worse. What I say to people is, the flu's bad. We can all agree on that. But imagine having two flus. That would be much worse. And that's what coronavirus is. It's not a flu uh, scientifically, but socially, that's how it's going to affect us. So if one's bad, two are much worse. So I don't think it's one is worse than the other. It's multiplicative. So that's what we have to worry about. And I, I think when you explain it to people that way, they go, oh, yeah, I get it. The flu's bad. And this is also bad. I mean, that's interesting. Just thinking about fear as a contagious thing and how... A story about empty shelves of toilet paper, I, I, I have a reaction where I'm like, that's idiotic. And then my second thought is, do I need a lot of toilet paper? And then <laughs> telling people not to panic is a great way to make them panic. Like, if you just look at the numbers, this does not register as a dire global crisis. The flu kills so many more people. We need to calm down is a message that I got in the Globe and Mail from from uh, Dr. Richard Shabas. I wonder what you think of media and messages like that which are like explicitly kind of making it a both sidesism argument that like, okay, the media is trying to present a lot of voices. I can kind of pick, choose my own adventure. I can look at the more um, panicked kind of information about what I need to be uh, hoarding. I can uh, look at this other piece that says, uh, this is no big deal. And this is just another, you know, the National Post as well was telling us, uh, there was a commentator there saying that this is just the news media trying to sell newspapers by stoking fears. That fuels a lot of people's inclination to shrug this off. Yeah, so to address that piece, you know, we like to, in the media, of course, run a variety of views. So we have the expected contrarian opinion. Dr. Shabas is well known. He gives us the contrarian opinion every time H1 comes along or SARS. So someone's always going to do that. I, I don't think that view that, oh, the numbers aren't bad now, so we shouldn't worry. I don't think that holds much credence. We have to worry about the potential for this. Uh, if it doesn't end up being a big deal, great. But that doesn't mean we should do nothing. What makes this a pandemic disease is no one has any resistance to it. So that's what makes it problematic. Theoretically, everybody in the world could get this coronavirus. Not going to happen, but it could happen. So we have to, I think, err on the side of caution. Not going overboard, not going crazy, but being cautious. And when we start getting numbers uh, jumping you know, quite a bit, almost doubling every day. That's when we have to be concerned because, as I mentioned before, again, uh, if it's bad now, you know in two weeks it's going to be much worse. Is it responsible to run stories and opinions encouraging people to take this less seriously? 
I, I think you have to give uh, space to the voices that are out there. And I think the public's divided. I was listening to a call-in show yesterday. Half of them were like, ah, this is nothing, you know, don't bother me. And the other half were like, oh, you know, this is the end of the world as we know it. And the reality is somewhere in between there. So we have to, I think, give voice to, to some of those contrarian opinions, but try and keep them in some context. I mean, something that I worry about is that uh, a country like China can unilaterally impose very strict constraints on huge parts of the population. I'm pretty uh, big on civil liberties and discourse and having lots of different voices. But there is a time when you kind of like have to bow to scientific consensus and everybody really does have to walk the line. And I, I wonder if, if making this debatable or, you know, just a, a matter for like salon discussion might be like really detrimental if, if that takes root. Yeah, I think there's no question we have to behave differently in a democracy than in a authoritarian regime like China. So I, th I think, uh, you know, forget about China. I think we have to look to countries like uh, South Korea for our response. So South Korea is a democracy. It had a really bad outbreak very early and it's reined it in and it's done it with social distancing, the stuff we talked about, you know, getting rid of mass gatherings by closing schools and most importantly, by counting on the public to take their responsibilities, stay home from work, uh, corporations, you have to do your part, you have to bite the bullet, you have to take some losses, and you have to do it for the greater good. And that's, that's what democracy is. It's about thinking not just of the individual, but thinking about the collectivity, but not putting troops in the street, not uh, literally locking people into their homes or threatening them with jail, as was done with China. That's not the way we should go. I'm not a believer in quarantine at all. I'm a believer mm -hmm. in asking the public to do stuff that's going to cause them some harm in the short term, but benefit them in the long term. Like, don't go to Maple Leafs hockey games. We can do without hockey games for a few weeks if it's going to stop uh, a few thousand people from dying. When you compare this to uh, previous outbreaks or, you know, H1N1 or SARS or, you know, again, not your first rodeo, and you c consider the best case scenario is that uh, in a few weeks or a few months, people will say, wow, that that Picard really overdid it. What an alarmist that guy was. And, you know, I guess he was just trying to sell newspapers. That, that would be the best thing that could happen. Uh, when you look back, is this analogous to other ones? Like, are, 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 were there occasions where you were glad that you were raising alarm bells and that actually that had, along with a lot of other efforts, a cumulative effect of, of, of constraining something? Like, is there, is there a precedent for things to go right? Nothing would make me happier than to be totally wrong, and this disappears when it gets sunny out. So, you know, we know weather can have an impact, but it's not clear it'll make coronavirus disappear the way it does with the flu every year. But I'd, I'd love to be wrong. I'd love to uh, for us to do all this stuff and nothing happens, and they say, that Picard's an idiot. I'm fine with that. But I would hate for us to look back and say oh, you know, how could we have prevented those 10,000 deaths? Why didn't we act sooner? And, and that's, we have to find that balance. We have to find the balance between acting, what is going to be the consequence economically and medically, and doing nothing. What's the consequence of that going to be economically and medically? And it's, we don't know. 
it's very difficult to figure it out, but we have to try and watch the evidence, watch what's going on in other countries. Uh, you know, I've been watching Italy a lot, and I think Italy should concern us tremendously. They have a, a fabulous medical system, probably, you know, as good or better than Canada's, and they are totally overwhelmed. It's falling apart. Their society's on the brink of economic collapse. And, and why? Because they were a little bit loosey-goosey when this landed. They said, ah, you know, we've got good medicine. This isn't going to affect us the way it affected China. And they were wrong. I mean, the Italy example, our conversation might seem ludicrously calm when you consider what we're hearing from there. And I think that the idea of flattening the curve is something that I've seen, uh, you know, a thousand images on social media this morning. It's a bit of a complicated idea to convey the idea that if this spikes and the medical system is overwhelmed and there's not enough respirators to go around and anybody who ha wants to access the healthcare system for any other reason is denied access, things can devolve very quickly. Society can break down and some of the stuff we're hearing and seeing from Italy is tremendously concerning. And you have a very clear path whereby if you can just spread out the level of infection and the burden on the healthcare system, we do have a capacity at which we can handle this. Uh, and that's what lays in the balance. And there are thousands and thousands of lives that lay in the, like, like I, I, th that to me explained why you were pushing, I'm not going to say a panic button, but I think why you were uh, calling for the, the, did I have that right? That it's like, okay, this, this is the time in as calm a voice as possible to say the most severe uh, in encouragement as I can at this point uh, to, to avoid that spike in, the, in, the, in that curve. Yeah, I think someone had to say that, listen, we we have a health system that's always at capacity. We we don't have a lot of wiggle room for more cases. And when you start seeing uh -huh. community spread, it means there's going to be a lot more people going to hospital. So we, you know, it's what are we going to do about that? And you talked about the flattening the curve. We're going to hear that term until we're sick of it in the coming days. But I think it's a pretty simple thing to explain. I sort of say, you know, imagine you want to get up a mountain. You can scale it from the side really rapidly. And it, you know, it's difficult to get a huge, quick ascent. Or you can do a meandering trip around and get there a lot slower. So one's a, a steep curve and one's another a slower curve. And that's, if you think of that uh, and you think of the, the climb being disease, if you have all these cases all at once, there's no way our system can handle it. If the same number of people get sick uh, and it happens over a few weeks or a few months, it's a very, very different scenario, much easier to cope with. And that's why, that's why you take some of these extreme measures, uh, canceling hockey games, school, church, uh, that's that's the practical reason for doing it. It's not because we hate sports or because we think kids should not get educated. It's a, a practical reason that has hopefully a long-term benefit. Let's all get sick really slowly. Well, you know, the, you, you don't want to say that out loud, but ultimately the best way to resolve this would be for everyone to get mild illness, and then we wouldn't have a problem anymore. But we know that that's not how it works. There are people who are susceptible, uh, who are vulnerable, and they're mostly the frail elderly. They're people with chronic illnesses. Uh, they're people who are poor. And we have to pay particular attention to them. You know, if most of us are going to be, most of us are going to get this, and we're going to be fine. But that doesn't mean we should uh, be complacent or that we shouldn't care about those who aren't going to be fine. Do I have the science of that right? Like if, 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 we, if you can get it mildly and in a, in a, at a time when the medical system can, can sustain, uh, can, can take care of you properly, 
you kind of want it because if it does disappear in the summer, it's likely going to come back in some form in the fall, and it might it might have evolved and mutated a little bit by then, and and we want to build up some resistance to that. Like, do I have the science right? Yeah, you don't. I wouldn't go so far as to say you want it. It's going to be nasty. You know, if you've ever had the flu, it's nasty, and this is a little worse. Uh, so I think what you ideally want is to for things to hold out until there's a vaccine. But realistically, that's a couple of years away. Uh, mutation is really interesting. Uh, the good thing about coronaviruses is they tell, tend to mutate towards mildness. So if we can get through this season, it may come back next year, but not be as deadly. That would be great. Uh, some flus, you know, are really bad. Some are not bad at all. Again, the virulence really depends. And, and we don't know a lot about coronaviruses to know if that's, they have the same patterns. You know, SARS, we look at the example of SARS. SARS disappeared, right? We mm -hmm. erased it from the face of the earth. And... Why? It, because it was a little too deadly. So it was a little too deadly, so it killed its hosts, so it couldn't spread. So that's the, the paradox of viruses. They either are not too deadly, and they spread really easily, so that's the flu, or they are really deadly, and they don't spread at all. That's Ebola. You know, it kills 60 70% of people. And then you have coronavirus, which is somewhere... I wouldn't say in the middle, more like the flu, but it's a, a little more deadly and spreads a little less readily. It's a Goldilocks spore. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Andre, um, how many rolls of toilet paper do you have at home? Uh, I don't know, the normal amount. I didn't go stock up or anything. <laughs> what have you changed in your life in, 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 in preparation for this? Uh, nothing. Uh, you know, I'm a health reporter. I always wash my hands thoroughly. Uh, I don't get overly worked up about these things because I've been covering them a long time. But I, I think, uh, you know, people talk to me. I, I did a piece recently about nursing homes. Uh, this is particularly a concern to nursing homes. But I said, you know, we should always be careful about visiting nursing homes in the winter. We bring all kinds of bugs with us. Uh, this is just another bad passenger. So it's a lot of stuff we should be doing normally. We're just getting reminded to do now. So washing our hands, being careful of the frail elderly, make sure uh, kids are taken out of school when they're sick because they're such vectors for disease. This is all stuff we should do on a day-to-day -day basis, but it takes a pandemic disease to, to remind us of it. So I, I don't really do a lot different. Except do all these media interviews, I guess. <laughs> Andre, should I send my staff home? That's an issue of social distancing. So should we all work at home? I think when people are in small offices, it's not a big deal. Uh, the issue with uh, telecommuting that people are being urged to do, it, it's more with the transport. So you don't want a gazillion people on the subway every morning because that's where diseases can really spread quickly. Uh, you don't want uh, a thousand people at a church service like in South Korea. That's how they got a massive outbreak overnight was because of that. You don't want two people at the hockey game or the basketball game infecting hundreds of others. So you want to avoid mass events. The, the standard has become, you know, more than 100 people. Avoid events that are more than 100. You have a little office of a few people, won't make a difference one way or another. You know, I, when we talk about social distancing, I think we have to remember it doesn't mean shutting everything down. You know, we had that in our catchy globe headline, but mm -hmm. I think it went on to say what we mean is, is shut down big events. Don't shut down daily life. Go on with your daily life, but make it just a little bit, you know, keep your distance a bit. 
Uh, we're not. I'm certainly not advocating what they're doing in Italy. They've shut every store except grocery stores. Uh, you can't have more than five people in a store at a time. They've taken really extreme measures, and, and we're not there, and I hope we never get there. Yeah, but I mean, like, subways and streetcars are part of everyday life. Yeah, and they're going to be part of everyday life for some people, but if there are half as many people or a third, that's going to be much better. Andre, I know that uh, you know, you're know you working really hard right now. There's a lot of demand on your time from media and also just to, to follow this as closely as you can. So I, I really do appreciate you finding some, uh, some time for the show today. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's always a pleasure to chat. Thanks. That is your Canada Land episode. If you like this show, then you might enjoy the ad-free version of the show, which you can get now for $5 a month Canadian. And it's so easy to do that. Just go and click on the link in your show notes or go to canadalandshow.com slash join. And it takes just a moment to pay any way you like. And bloop, you get a golden premium podcast feed that is automatically installed on your podcasting app. It's kind of cool. Check it out. Our website, canadalandshow.com, is where you'll find a trailer for the upcoming new season of Commons. I'm not going to tell you what this new season is about. You're going to have to go download it because I'm going to be that way today. Uh, you can also get the new episode of Cool Mules. It is happening. The show is is creeping into people's feeds all over the world. It's incredible to see the map of the world light up with downloads for Cool Mules and people really engaging with it and, and uh, not just this kind of shocking crime story, but what the show is actually about, which I think is just about when the gig economy turns criminal check out Cool Mules. This episode is produced by Kasia Mihailovich, our senior producer. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca.